The following show is for entertainment purposes only. It references research about psychological issues in general, but it is not to be taken as a professional opinion or diagnosis about the individuals in each case. Neither of the hosts has an established professional relationship with the individuals discussed in these stories, and everything discussed is based on their general professional knowledge, training, and experience. Welcome to Guilty, a true crime podcast. My name is Colin, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we're joined by David, our licensed professional counselor. We're going to discuss narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and empathy. Since this is a re-recording to fix some of the audio issues we had during this episode, we're going to go ahead and skip housekeeping. If you're interested in contacting us, you can reach us on Twitter at Guilty underscore podcast. You can reach us on Facebook at Guilty Podcast, or you can email us, guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. With that said, let's get David on. All right, David, we're going to go ahead and start broad. Let's talk a little bit about narcissism. I think the best way to think about narcissism is first to talk about what it's not. You know, this is one of those words that is on the tip of everybody's tongue right now. And I think it's because it gets popularized through common media. And also it's like, you know, every woman who gets a divorce, her ex-husband's a narcissist and every man who gets a divorce, his ex-wife's hysterical. You know, so it's like, these are kind of words that have become used as weapons when we're angry. And so it's really important, I think, to just clear out what it is that we're actually talking about. So narcissism is not somebody who's egotistical, although narcissists are, you know, like, so there's some really interesting stats about what's happened socially in our country. So, you know, 82% of drivers think they're in the top 33% of drivers. So there's this tendency for people to overestimate their abilities, but that's not narcissism. You know, it's also true. There was a inventory, it's called the MMP, sorry, MMPI. And it was given in the 1950s. And they asked people to say, if they agreed with the question or the statement, I'm a special person. And at the time, 12% agreed and by the 80s, that number had exploded to over 80%. So that's not narcissism. I mean, it's concerning maybe socially, but it's it's not clinical narcissism. Okay. Um, so there was also one more example of this. There was a researcher named Jean Twenge, and she found that uh, 30% of college students agreed with the following statement. If I show up to every class, I at least deserve a B. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, man, so. I would have had a much better college experience if that were the case. <laughs> right? Hey, I was here. Where I was here. <laughs> That's a millennial thing. <laughs> so, you know, you can point to these sort of things and say, you know, that it's concerning, but it's not. It's not clinical. It's it's subclinical. 
you know, but narcissism, if you want to think about it in a clinical sense, you're dealing with people that have this desire to be admired. They kind of think of themselves as, um, undiscovered celebrities and, uh, but they're also generally clueless as to how they're being experienced. So when you're sitting across from somebody who's narcissistic, you're usually thinking to yourself, when is this person going to stop talking? <laughs> oh man, how many people have sat across from me thinking that very thing? <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, people who are, are narcissistic, they're bored when they're not on stage. Yeah. Um, and every, every room is their stage, you know, so it's, it's, uh, there's this, you know, need for admiration and the sense of grandiosity. But it also it's it's comes with this lack of empathy, and you know empathy is essential in terms of knowing how you're being experienced. You know you have to be able to think about how somebody might be feeling on the other side of the conversation, and because you can't do that, you're trying to garner this respect and admiration, but you're just really bad at it because you don't have the ability to put yourself in their shoes. This is not something your average person who's a little egotistical has. No, no, this is, and I think that's a really good way of putting it. This is not um, that cocky dude that you know. Yeah. You know, this is, when we're talking about something clinical, we're talking about somebody who couldn't make a choice to be another way. Okay. You know, this is their their default mode. And you can imagine, like, this comes with a lot of suffering for the person who has narcissistic personality disorder because they always they don't understand why people aren't responding to them in the way that they're that they need or that they feel that they need and so it's also very hard obviously for the people who are in their lives much harder i would say you know it's it's never fun to feel like somebody's just trying to turn you into their audience at every opportunity but this cluelessness that people who have narcissistic personality disorder like one of the things that's pretty common is they will say condescending things or hurtful things without knowing they're being hurtful so if somebody's overweight, they might be making jokes about people that are overweight to that person, you know, so there's but a they're real, clueless. they're clueless. They yeah, have not no actually. idea. Yeah. Wow. It's, narcissism isn't, I hate you. Narcissism is I love me. And so it's not, it's not necessarily that they're mean spirited people, but they still do a lot of damage. So. Are there any other symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder? I'm assuming this is just one, or is this one that comprises many various symptoms? Well, I think it, it depends on each person. And, you know, in the DSM, which is our uh, big book of diagnosis, there's a set of criteria. But what the main, the central things that you're looking at are a constant need for admiration, a sense of grandiosity, and a lack of empathy. Okay. Um, you know, and so those three things fit together and, and create this. The trifecta. Um, yeah, this trifecta of celebrity, <laughs> undesired celebrity. <laughs> and it's you know, undesired celebrity. Um, and this is something. So these guys have no idea that what they're doing is harmful to other people. And it's not because they're being malicious. It's it's this is a, this is an not an imbalance in their brain necessarily, but it, it's something wrong with the wiring in their brain. Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a component of nature to it. Um, I don't know exactly what the mechanics in the brain are, but I know that it's highly heritable. So, you know, if you have a parent who's narcissistic, you obviously have an elevated chance of inheriting many of those traits. You know, it's uh, with, with all personality 
the stats are basically that 50% of your personality is heritable. You know, it's inherited wow. through genes. Okay. So, um, that good. Mean- so nobody should be in jail then. I mean, come on, we can't just put people in jail. It's, it's heritable. I inherited this. I inherited this. <laughs> yes. You inherited. I inherited it. It came to me. Yeah. Inherited. Inherited. Big time inherited. Yeah. I, I think that, um, it is. So there's another 50% there, right. That has a lot to do with your unshared environment, you know, your friend group, um, yeah. that sort of thing. And then, you know, there's a, a little part left for parenting, which a lot of parents don't like to hear, but yeah, 50% of who you are in large part, you know, you, you come into the world as a person with a set of potentialities and then some of those potentialities can be activated or suppressed. This and would be, so, a, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was just saying that the idea that you come into the world as a blank slate, you know, this sort of tabula rasa idea has been, you know, dunked on over and over and over again by science. It's just not true. It's not that you come into the world as a blank sheet of paper and then your experiences make who, make you who you are. You come into the world as a person and, you know, your your set of genes that you have inherited, those can become unlocked in certain ways or they can be repressed in certain ways. So this is a, I mean, this is a, a deeper philosophical question we don't need to answer, but it's interesting because that means that how culpable is someone actually when we take into account their genetics and then their environment when they were a child, what they were taught, uh, we're over 50%, right? Yeah. So here's the thing though. So 50%, you know, inherited through genes, uh, the unshared environment though, and these are all approximate percentages. And this comes from Judith Harris's work and people who are familiar with this or, or interested in this. She wrote a really great book called the nurture assumption. So the other, this is an approximation, but 40% belongs to the unshared environment. So that's the environment outside of the home. So that's friends, you know, a lot of people who have siblings, you know, who aren't doing well and they look at themselves and I'm like, I turned out okay. What's wrong with them? Well, look at their friends, you know, that, that usually explains quite a bit. And so the process through which you become socialized has a lot to do with who you become. And so you know, there is some responsibility in terms of which friends we choose. And then, you know, the 10% that's remaining, that's actually thought to be parenting. And so if you have great kids, kids that have turned out and they're, they're really doing great, um, parents hate that because they want to take more credit. Yeah. But if you've had a kid who's really screwed up and your parent has been blaming yourself, you are like, what did I do wrong? That can be a huge relief to hear that, you know? And so, what we know is that parenting can lead to a good parenting can lead to uh, good outcomes and bad outcomes. And there's a role of the person's immediate social group, the people they choose to surround themselves that really has a lot to do with who they become. So this is why somebody who had a bad childhood and maybe had some really messed up parents can still be a successful person. And um, you can have people like the Menendez brothers, for example, who come from a wealthy family who seem to have some pretty loving parents and uh, some decent, I mean, I guess I don't know their genetics, but from my understanding, didn't have any serious issues, they can turn into murderers. Totally. You know, and so it would be really nice to blame our parents for everything, but you can come from a lot of different backgrounds and, and be different people. You know, so it's like a lot of times when, you know, when therapists go and work with people who are incarcerated, 
they expect every single one of the people that they're working with to have these tragic background stories. And a lot of times that's just not the case. A lot of times you, 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 you know, therapists will meet people and go, man, I wish I had that childhood. So it's not the case that every single person who victimizes somebody else has some trauma in their background. And there is a lot of trauma in the backgrounds of, of people that are incarcerated and who victimize others. Yeah. But, but that's more of a trend, not a law. And, okay. and you you know, there are many people who are incarcerated who were raised in very wealthy, supporting environments. So with respect to narcissism, is there any correlation between people who have narcissistic personality and are criminals? So I think you could think about it this way. Narcissistic personality disorder is oftentimes cooked into the personality of somebody who victimizes someone else. So, you know, generally there's another diagnosis called antisocial personality disorder. And so that's just basically in a nutshell, somebody who violates the basic rights of somebody else and seems to be comfortable doing that. And so if you're comfortable violating the basic rights of somebody else, chances are you are going to have some narcissistic traits and qualities. So it almost, you can think of it almost as it's going to be very hard to find somebody who victimizes somebody else, enjoys doing so, and, and also doesn't demonstrate narcissistic tendencies. So it's almost cooked inside of it. But if you're narcissistic, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a victimizer, at least in a criminal sense. You probably are going to victimize people in your family unintentionally. But, you know, I think it's like 1% of the population is diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, and it's up to 3%. In certain groups, um, I think people in their 20s, which is kind of funny to me. But yeah, so if, if you are somebody who is a predator, somebody who enjoys hurting other people, you're definitely going to demonstrate some narcissistic qualities. But if you're narcissistic, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a criminal. Okay. So yeah, it goes it goes one way most of the time, but not necessarily the other. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's a one-way bridge in most cases. I see. So diagnosing someone as having narcissistic personality disorder wouldn't mean that we should be on high alert and, and watch them. Well, yeah, not, not in a sense that they could become, I mean, you might want to be on high alert if they're in your family. Well, yeah, but I mean, they're not dangerous. Right. They might take yeah, advantage of you, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily going to kill you or rob you or harm you in any, any way. Yeah. Well, they'll, they will probably victimize you, but not in a criminal sense. Okay. Now, antisocial personality is a little bit different, right? Yeah, so if you want to think about narcissistic personality disorder as I love me, you could think of antisocial personality disorder as I love me and I hate you. Oh, okay. So, so it's almost like an exponential narcissistic yeah. personality. And that's what I mean by like narcissism is almost cooked into antisocial personality disorder. I see. Is that, that component exists, you know, so... I think that um, with somebody who's antisocial personality disorder, there's an enjoyment in hurting other people, right? So we, we tend to like to think that that type of person doesn't exist, that everybody who hurts somebody else ultimately does it because they were hurt once. You know, you've heard the thing like hurt people, hurt people, yeah. you know? And that's true in some sense, but not in a clinical sense. You know, there, there are people that are out there who enjoy hurting other people. It's It's... It gives them a sense of gratification. And so, you know, in that sense, that, that's different than somebody who has 
narcissistic personality disorder. Um, there's a, they're, they're both difficult people to be around, but if I had to choose, give me the narcissist 10, uh, 10 times. Well, yeah, because that's, uh, that's antisocial light. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, you can almost think of like somebody with narcissistic personality disorders walking through a living room and doesn't see any of the furniture and just keeps running into it and stubbing their toe. And, you know, every once in a while, a piece of the furniture, you know, hits you because they just don't see where it is. You know, they knock into it and it bumps into you and it's, it's annoying and hurtful. Yeah. The person with antisocial personality disorder walks into the living room, picks up the table and smashes it over your back. <laughs> you know, so, wow. right. so, so it's like a wrestling match. <laughs> we went real WWE on this metaphor. Yeah. But, but the idea is that, uh, you, one is deliberate. Um, in one case being victimized is deliberate and in the other, it's a byproduct of the diagnosis, but in, in most cases, an unintentional byproduct. So with antisocial personality disorder, we've got people that they love themselves, they hate others and they get enjoyment out of harming people, right? Yep. So would you say then that they are sadistic in nature or are those two separate things? That's a good question. So it can be that somebody who is a sadist, it, look, if you're a sadist, you're going to meet the debt. You're going to meet the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Oh, really? Some, yeah. I mean, there are some people, though, who are antisocial that I wouldn't characterize as being sadist in another sense. So there's two different types of aggression, the research. Well, there's more than that, but for the purposes of making this a little more streamlined, you can think of proactive aggression, you can think of reactive aggression. So proactive aggression, this is generally somebody that is seeking out opportunities to be violent. They generally are very status oriented. Um, they are power hungry and they're generally very skilled fighters. They're, they're skilled with their aggression. So, you know, that's, that is one type of aggression. The other type is reactive aggression. You know, people who are reactively aggressive oftentimes um, have exposure to malnutrition while they're in utero. Um, they have very low, I think that on average, they're um, eight IQ points uh, lower when it comes to uh, verbal IQ. So they're not very good with their words. They overestimate threats. They don't read, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, facial expressions very well. So that they don't really understand their environments as well as other people. And then oftentimes they become aggressive because they're just trying to defend themselves against either a real or imagined threat. So if you are a reactively aggressive person, you can still meet the diagnosis for antisocial personality disorder. But I, I don't know that I would call you a sadist. And, and by the way, being a sadist is not diagnosable title in the DSM, just to be clear, you know, but when you think about sadism, you think about somebody who you think about somebody who enjoys the suffering of other people in the way that somebody who has antisocial personality does. But there's also, uh, you know, some really interesting research about the specific psychological features of somebody who's a sadist in terms of, you know, they enjoy the thrill of it, you know, so oftentimes you find people, and this is true. I mean, you're going to, so you're going to see some overlap and it's kind of hard to talk about it this way because antisocial personality disorder is an actual diagnosable um, title where sadism isn't. Sadism is more of something that's just researched apart from it, but you're going to kind of, you could Venn diagram these things. So somebody who has, or who is sadistic, you know, they enjoy 
um, inflicting suffering. It gives them a thrill. They get excited about it, you know, and uh, the best metaphor that I've read to kind of understand it is, you know, it's kind of like bungee jumping. So you engage in the violent act and then uh, you experience this fear of being caught and you experience these intense emotions because you're, you're being violent. Maybe you're killing somebody. And the relief and the fun comes in once you realize you're not going to be caught. So it's kind of like a bungee jumper that jumps off of a mountain or off a bridge or whatever. And there's all this fear until the rope, you know, pulls them back up. And that's where the euphoria comes is in realizing that you're going to be okay. And so, you know, with somebody who's has those sadistic tendencies, oftentimes they chase more and more extreme experiences because they continue to need that reversal of relief. It's the reserve, the reversal of relief that they really enjoy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not necessarily the harm. Well, it, there's certainly adrenaline and power involved in all that, you know, so, but I would also say that like killing in and of itself is a pretty disgusting thing. And a lot of people don't really fully appreciate that. So, you know, when they did the interviews of people that were in uh, guarding concentration camps who initially killed the folks in those camps and they asked them, you know, what were your initial impressions or what were your thoughts about taking somebody's life after you did it for the first time? And you'd think that they would feel really remorseful. I mean, I would. I would think that the natural response would be like, I felt horrible. And most people said I was disgusted. It was disgusting. And so there's certainly some adrenaline involved in taking somebody's life. And the sadists require that. You require the adrenaline in order for the relief to feel as good as it does. But killing in and of itself is, is disgusting to most people. So what would be a reason that a criminal would want to share their crime to maybe, uh, I mean, I guess getting attention would be one reason, but I feel like we've got criminals that do everything they can to hide what they're doing, to hide it from friends, family, and maybe because they're ashamed, maybe because they just don't want to get caught. But what would be a reason why someone would want to share their crime with an audience? Well, maybe, you know, it's because, so let's think in terms of that metaphor, right? The metaphor of, you know, jumping off the bridge with the, with the you know, your bungee jumping. Maybe you do so much killing that it just doesn't, you're not falling as fast or you get used to falling at the same speed. And so the relief isn't nearly as satisfying. The sense of getting away with it isn't nearly as satisfying. So, you know, I think for some of these people, you increase the speed of falling from the bridge by sharing it, right? You up the odds that you're going to be caught. Yeah. Right? You're, you're, you know, and so in doing so, you get more adrenaline on the way down and more of a relief on the way back up. You know, the other thing is that grandiosity, that sense of needing to be known, needing to be respected, needing to be feared. Eventually, not getting caught and those needs start to run in opposite directions, right? You, you want to be known. You want to be famous. You want to be, you know... You want people to be afraid of you. Well, if they don't know who you are, how are they going to do that? Yeah. So, so people start to hedge their bets. I think you know I've read some some interviews where people talk about how they they start to hedge, they start to up the up the game a little bit, and they, they start to become upset that people don't know who they are, 
And so I think that's why sometimes people start to, you know, send notes, put things online, become more visible. So I know that you haven't researched it, but Zodiac would be a good example of this. So he starts by sending notes and then he, so I actually let's back up. The very fact that he has a name would be important, right? That he's known as Zodiac in, in his case, because then they have a target. They've got, well, not a target, but they've got a subject. So they know they have something to call it without mm. him revealing who he is. You're saying it's almost like an opportunity to, br to brand yourself anonymously. Yeah, you want, yes, because you want people to know who you are, but not know your true identity. It's like it, it solves that problem of I have to stay hidden, but I want to be known. Yeah. So someone like him and they need to escalate it. So then he says he wants people in San Francisco to start wearing a Zodiac pin on their clothing while they walk around. So pretty soon sending letters wasn't enough. He now wants more recognition, but he doesn't want recognition here. It's almost like he wants fear. He wants mm -hmm. people to do it out of fear of what he could do or will do or threatens he'll do if they don't do it. So is this, this is, this is a craving for people to fear him, right? Well, I mean, I, like you said, I haven't studied it and you know, I don't, I don't really know, but, but I think that it's, it's interesting to me that there is such a desire um, for social recognition with a lot of these types of crimes you know, it isn't good enough for these people to do what it is they're doing than to go underground, you know, and, and I guess many of them do, but it seems like there's a significant percentage of these people who, you know, they, they have to find a way to brand and promote what they're doing. Yeah. And I guess that's, maybe we should, we should discuss it this way. And I think we brought it up a little bit earlier, but you've got the killers that kill and they keep it as quiet as they can. They hide the bodies. They do everything they can to stay out of the spotlight because they want to continue killing. Their thrill is to kill someone. And then you've got other people uh, who will do everything they can to publicize the murders. They want to be in the spotlight. They want their articles in the paper. They want these people's pictures, the autopsy photo, uh, autopsy photos revealed they want everything public and they want recognition for what they've done is there anything that we can talk about related to maybe why some people want to not publicize it and why some want that attention or is that just the narcissistic personality coming through yeah i think that's a great question i mean to me it's it is it's so interesting that some people it's like they want their report card on the fridge you know, and it's like, I think about that, you know, some kids want their parents to put the honor roll student bumper sticker on their car. And some people are like, do not do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I, think, I imagine part of it is like individual differences. And then, yeah, it's really hard to like have a desire to be famous and, and have this like, you know, unquenched need for admiration if you're doing it all in private. You know, so I think... I think maybe it depends on the type of person. Maybe it depends on how narcissistic that person is. Maybe it depends on how bored that person is. You know, most of these people who are sadists or who are proactively aggressive have low resting heart rates. They also have 
really low skin conductance, which basically, you know, when you do research on um, these types of people, you can, you know, hook up certain technology to their hands and measure how much they sweat when you expose them to violent imagery. What? You guys yeah. really study everything, huh? <laughs> who, who thought that? Like, there was a doctor somewhere that said, you know, what we should find out is if they sweat a lot. Like, well, when they see certain images, we should well, we should test that. And then an you indication. did it. Not only did it's, you think about it, you did it. It's an indication of their central nervous system reactivity, yeah. right? So, so when you hook them up to that, you can get really good information about, you know, if their brain is less sensitive to stimuli that most people would respond really strongly to. And what we found is that when you expose them to violent imagery, oftentimes their heart rates go down and their skin conductance um, diminishes. In other words, they sweat less. Really? Yeah. So, so I would think as a lay person, I would think it would be the opposite. I think they would, I would have thought they would have gotten excited because it's something not necessarily that turns them on, but that triggers that thrill that we talked about earlier maybe i mean i i also think it could be an indication of focus you know like really zoning into something yeah um but you you can at least start to see where the the incentives that are in place are very different for these types of folks than they are for most people you know just the way that their their biology primes them to respond is is totally different than you know, if you expose me to violent images, I'm like, ugh, I have this wincing response. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and for most people, your heart rate's going to go up and you're going to sweat more. And so it's not just a matter of people making different choices with the same biology. You know, there's good reason to think that they're satisfying their biology by making different choices. So for your average person, your heart rate goes up, you start to sweat more. And this is a biological reaction. This is something you can't really control. Mm -hmm. And nature would have primed us um, because maybe we would see danger in that situation or a threat. Well, yeah. So think about this. I mean, imagine primitive man is walking, you know, through a field and he sees, you know, some bushes, uh, you know, moving Yeah. and he looks and he sees a wild animal or what could be a wild animal. And so then what happens is he has adrenaline that's dumped um, into his system. Um, or he has, um, you know, cortisol stress, which is dumped into his system. And that enables him to, you know, that's a form of energy, right? So that enables him to uh, get away from that situation in whatever way his brain thinks it, it, you can most realistically survive. So in that sort of situation, you know, you're going to either, you know, you've heard fight, flight, or, or freeze, right? Yeah. So your brain is going to deploy one of those strategies, the one that it thinks is most likely going to save you. And so, but you need that energy. You need that burst of energy. You know, so you've heard of like the grandma whose kid gets trapped under the car and then, you know, granny lifts it up and the kid comes out and, you know, that's sort of like superhuman strength. Yeah. Well, that's because when you're in a, when, when you are in a position of incredible fear, um, your brain deploys these natural resources that enable you to focus and survive. And so if you're in a situation where it's dangerous, you know, your, your brain is going to send you these panic uh, signals. And when you do that, your heart rate's going to go up. You're going to start to sweat. Um, your body is preparing you to survive by creating this additional energy. Yeah. And these and people so, don't have that. No. And so, it, it almost begs the question, like, maybe they don't need it. Or maybe, <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
or maybe they see themselves as sh- is it possible that they're so arrogant as to think that they're the predator in yeah. all these situations so they're not afraid of anything <laughs> i think that's an amazing insight i hadn't thought about it that way but yeah i mean maybe it's that you know they see something wrestling in the grass and they go i'm the lion right yeah. that, that must be an antelope yeah exactly that yeah that's almost like they're they're just they're skewed they're intrigued yeah interesting so i wonder how these people fared in those conditions i mean they're around today that mm-hmm. symptom or rather those illnesses are around so they've survived i just wonder i i'm actually curious now you guys do all you know it's kind of disappointing well this is going to sound bad but i feel like um i miss the old days uh, of psychology where you guys would actually test everything, whether it was ethical or not. <laughs> yeah. So it would be interesting to put somebody that has these views in a dangerous situation mm. and to see if they react different. So their, their sweat, they don't perspirate or at least as much. And their heart rate goes down when they see violent images. But I wonder if they were subject to being in a cage with a lion, how they would respond. Would they respond like a normal person or would they respond differently? Or even if it was without the lion, you put them in a situation where there may or may not be something dangerous and see how they respond in nature. Yeah, that would, that would be interesting. I mean, most of our, you know, the history of psychology, you're looking at like the end of the 1800s when we kind of started. And most of the history of psychology in terms of its, you know, fulfillment to ethical obligations, at least as we presently understand them is just abhorrent. I mean, we really did whatever we wanted. And uh, the problem now, though, is that none of those studies are, you can rep, you can't replicate any of them. So, yeah. you know, for ethical reasons, you can't replicate them. And because they can't be replicated, you don't know how much you can trust them. Um, yeah. You know, so the field is, has uh, made attempts to, you know, more gradually move towards obviously being more ethical, but also um, rooting our study in, biology, um, you know, and, and rooting it in evolutionary psychology, which is super interesting stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk about it on the podcast, but, um, yeah, so these sort of, you know, studies where we study people's skin conductance and heart rates and, um, all that stuff, it's really helping us get a, a more precise look into what's actually happening because, you know, we think that, look, introspection is an incredibly helpful tool, no doubt. But there's so much of what's going on at the psychological level that can't be understood through introspection. You know, you you think you know why you're doing something and maybe that's just your interpretation. You know, so it's like something like this, like apparently if you're in a courtroom and you're asked to hand down a sentence, if there's a flag in the room, on average, people offer a harsher sentence. You mean like any flag, like even like a nation's flag? Like the, yeah, like, like a, whatever, whatever flag, you know, your country is. Really? So the presence of like, um, national symbolism, um, increases your likelihood of offering down a harsh sentence. So you could ask the jurors, why did you, you know, decide this was fair? And they would give you a reason why, but they couldn't account for what was in their environment that increased their punitive tendency. Yeah. So, you know, you can introspect and that's super helpful and being reflective is really good for relationships. But in terms of understanding the human animal, it's it's a little arrogant to think that, man, if I just sit and ponder, I'll understand. Yeah. We don't apply those rules to other things that we study. 
That's crazy. A flag, huh? Well, that's why the Canadians, they must not have flags in their court and letting everybody go. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. And Americans must have like 10 flags because I feel like you could, you, you're busted for, you know, you had a couple joints in your car. You got 10 years in prison for it. Yeah, get beheaded. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have the exact opposite justice system here. We'll have to talk at some point about how religion is tied into justice because I feel like that retribution mm. is a is a big factor in in these, and that might be your introspection. Maybe the maybe the person who hands down a harsher sentence would it would be interesting to see if they're religious and if they are, what type of religion they practice and their views on punishment and well, things I'll, like that. I'll, I'll even push you one further. So check this out. So people who who are more satisfied with revenge or find revenge more permissible um, are generally people who sc score higher in empathy. What? So the way that that works out is if you are able to empathize with the person who was being victimized yeah. really strongly, then you're going to feel um, more satisfied with a harsher... Um, punishment that that justifies the or adequately meets the revenge as you experienced it when you were imagining it you know th that you know lines up with the suffering that you could really put yourself in the shoes of that person and so there's a lot of these brain bugs you can think of them as you know and and our our way of thinking through things you know like thinking empathy is good in all situations yeah actually that's not the case if, if you can really if you're over empathizing with somebody who's been victimized you're more likely to uh, come down really harshly on the victimizer. And and obviously, like, I'm not saying that people who victimize shouldn't be punished, but you certainly don't want um, an emotion like empathy, which you, you can start to think of it like a bias, right? A bias like empathy. It would be, a, yeah. A non-rational a non emotional bias like empathy. You don't want that guiding your punishments. That's interesting that you mentioned that because, and I know we're off topic, we'll get back on, but uh, that's how I, I think I see things. And studying a lot of these cases, I I get this overwhelming anger and hatred for these people. And, you know, what's funny is I, I even see it in nature. I actually watched, I saw a video today where um, a husky killed a poodle. Mm -hmm. um, they just... I know it's a, it's a random video. This is a random thought. But I remember seeing it, and then I was so mad at that husky. Like, I was like, I would if I was there, I would slit that dog's throat. I would kill that dog for what he did. And mm -hmm. I had to step back and remind myself, like, well, this is it's nature. I mean, the husky's probably being overly aggressive, but you can't really fault him for what he did. Right. And it's know, like he, overly aggressive compared to, I mean, compared to what? By, and by whose standard? Yeah. It's just being a husky. He's Yeah, he's he's doing what a dog does, especially a larger dog. And I don't know if they're aggressive. I don't know anything about dogs. Um, but now, is that an example of me over-empathizing with the smaller dog and then having this revenge mm -hmm. towards the bigger dog? Is that kind of what you mean? I think so. You know, the other, the other thing that's interesting about all this is the desire for revenge shuts off the empathic response so it's like if you're if you respond really strongly if you if you score very highly in empathy and you can empathize you know in a very precise way or what you think is precise with the person who's victimized 
then the re- the desire for revenge is heightened and then that empathy is shut off right the, your your ability to empathize with the person that you're punishing is shut off yeah yeah because i wouldn't i wouldn't empathize with the husky i would have beat him down yeah and i think that's why we like revenge movies so much interesting right it's like i love the movie tombstone oh yeah. and it's because it's like a 3 hour revenge movie right it's oh like, that's true <laughs> yeah yeah that's it all is. that it is it's 3 hours of sustained revenge <laughs> oh the best part too is when he comes out of the uh train with that shotgun Against oh, yeah. stupid idiot Ike, that <laughs> goofy idiot moron, and yeah. he just cuts him with uh, what are those called spurs? spurs yeah. yeah, he yeah. cuts his freaking mouth open. That stupid <laughs> clown. Oh, it's a great movie though. Yeah, yeah. You, you tell him hell's coming, and hell's coming with me. That's or you tell right. him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's interesting. We should explore that um, at some point. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I just think it's interesting that empathy can set you up to be heavy-handed. Yeah, and I think that that pertains to true crime podcasts. I think a lot of us probably overempathize, and maybe that's why we're interested in this. Is is we're we want to see some justice done for all of these victims, and we want to we want to know why these people did what they did. We want to be able to find a way to maybe prevent it or stop it sooner. Um, but maybe that intrigues. Maybe our empathy is part of the reason that we want to listen to these yeah in the same way that i guess my let me go back in the same way that we enjoy tombstone Mm -hmm. maybe that's why we like listening to true crime podcasts yeah well and i also think that it's just so easy to think of empathy as being only a positive emotion like but i would say we should almost think of empathy the way we think about anger where it's like sometimes anger is the right response and sometimes it's just a random emotional response that needs to be reined in yeah and i think being aware that when you're really angry you can make really bad decisions same is true when you're deep feeling deeply empathic and and i think that it's knowing what place to put your empathy you know it's knowing how to manage it and so i think empathy is really important for like relationships, like you have to know, like we're, you know, talking about narcissism. If you can't anticipate how you're being experienced, you're going to end up hurting people. Yeah. But I think that also understanding that some people who score really high in empathy, um, they're almost more set up to be, you know, blown by the wind in terms of whatever they're listening to that might, make them more prone to acting in a less ethical way. Um, Or, you know, this is also true with like relationships. So people who score empathy are also more likely to uh, score highly in empathy are also more likely to be susceptible to guilt trips. So if you're in a relationship and somebody is using guilt trips to manipulate you, it's typically because you score very high in empathy. Interesting. That, uh, ability to understand how they're experiencing the world that's almost being that's being used as an instrument against you yeah all right well so you heard it here david tells you don't be empathetic it's bad for you (laughs) and if you're empathetic you're gonna get beat up in your relationship and you're gonna over attack people the non-empathic therapist yeah no empathy so empathy bad (laughs) revenge good (laughs) I always want to sum up the show 
with just, you know, like four words. Give you something to think about during the day, you know? Empathy bad, revenge good, and we all move on. All right. Um, so we've got uh, narcissism. We've got sadism, which is not an actual diagnosis. So we've got two actual diagnoses that we talked about today. So we've got narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which is basically like narcissistic personality disorder squared. It's a a stronger (laughs) form, right? Yeah. The easiest way to to think about it, and this is how I teach my students is you want to, you want to put it real simple. You say, you know, narcissism is I love me. Antisocial personality disorder is I love me and I hate you. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to say, uh, I think Magnata has got the, I love me. I hate you based on his actions. That's kind of my interpretation of, of how he sees the world. I think that he said, you know, the two videos that he was in, in the first episode, you heard how much he loved him. I mean, there's no doubt about that. At the very least, he's narcissistic in my eyes because he was very clear that he loves him. I mean, that was absolutely crystal clear to me. And then I think taking someone on camera, murdering them on the internet, releasing the video, and mailing body parts around is an I hate you statement. If that's not a fuck you, I don't know what is. So... Mm. Uh, you know, in my eyes, this guy's got a serious case of antisocial personality disorder that we can go ahead and uh, we can put this dude in a cage and uh, we'll just I think we can keep him there for a very long time, preferably two, three hundred years. Even after he's dead, you leave him in there just in case, just Seems like in a case. waste of a cage at that point. What's that? Seems like a waste of a cage at that point. But we got we just I want to be prepared. You never know, dude. Medicine is moving quick. This dude comes back or something. I don't want him to get out then either. You know what I mean? Like we can't, we can't <laughs> risk it. I don't like risk. So yeah. we have to, we have to cut that risk down, especially mm. in Canada, because I feel like they locked the dude up for 10 years. They kind of brush off his shoulder. All right, you're good to go. You can get back in there. No, that's not <laughs> happening. You lock him up. You, you leave him at, you leave him in that cage. And after he's dead, just to make sure we just, we want to, until we start seeing some flies around, then we know, all right, he's probably, it stinks. There's some flies He's probably dead. We can we can pull him out now, but don't open it until then. I have to say, I, I love your your growing disdain with the Canadian justice system. I know, and I feel <laughs> bad because I I mean, a lot of our listeners are Canadian. It's not an insult against you. And uh, by the way, I'm not saying America's justice system is necessarily better. I think that we're too harsh with small crimes, and that's that's like the opposite problem. There's a lot of non-violent Violent. drug yeah. crimes yeah. that are being punished as if these people are rapists or murderers, and that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. So we have our own problems we have to sort out. But the Canadians just let everybody go. That's yeah. not an answer either, you know, especially for violent criminals. It's not allowing your your justice system to be ideological, and I think yeah, to some degree it has to be. But yeah. you can almost sense... Um, where many countries start, you know, I think was it Sweden, the guy who like killed tons of people and then like got like 13 years or something. I don't remember what it was. Oh, I feel like I know that case. I feel like he killed kids, right? People or something. I mean, he killed so many people and then he went to like a rehabilitation center where he had like internet access and had his own kitchen. And, you know, it's like when you think about that stuff, you can tell people have already made up their mind about who they're dealing with. Yeah. And the same is true over here. Like, you know, somebody commits a crime, you know, a, a drug offense or whatever. And I have opinions about that that we can get into because I do think that some drug offenses 
a lot of times they're pled down. And a lot of times, um, if you're like a drug dealer, it's not like, it depends on the kind of drug dealer you are. I guess I would just put it that way. Um, yeah. but, but you can tell, um, you know, that a lot of with these smaller crimes, people have these pre-existing ideas about who these people are, and then they just come down with the, with the hammer. So it's like figuring out how to be more research-based in terms of understanding, you know, what the projection is in terms of how likely people are to become violent and victimized in the future. And then also balancing that with, you know, sometimes compassion for the predator is brutality to the victim's family. So also balancing that with like, look, you're providing justice in a society so that their family doesn't have to go play eye for an eye. Yeah. Right. So, so you also have to kind of quench this primitive thirst for justice um, so that people feel as though justice has been served. And if you go too light handed, that can be really cruel to the victim's family. Yeah. So it's very, it's very sticky and very difficult, but I think becoming less ideological and more research based, uh, I think that's the way forward. Yeah. And we'll talk about that sometime. That's another philosophical question of, is it about rehabilitation? Is it about retribution? Or should it be a combination of both? And what is a good balance for a justice system? Cool. I'm into it. All right. Uh, is there anything else you want to say in terms of any of the um, the criminal psychology we talked about today? Um, I, I think the last thing I'd want to say is just I want to apologize to all the Canadians out there um, that Colin has you know disparaged. Um, and you should hear him when he's off the air. It's way worse than it is <laughs> on the air. I, I don't think I'm, I'm I'm saying too much when I say that Colin is on a Canadian rampage. And and I would I just want to caution everybody if you follow if you follow us on Twitter, um, you know, send him a message, encourage him if you're Canadian. He needs oh, it. No. We're gonna bring we're gonna bring him around. All no, right, don't don't around. do that. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I've already got to sort through enough. I can sort through. <laughs> Some angry Canadians. But the good news is, is Canadians don't get angry. Um, I don't think I've ever seen an angry Canadian. I've seen know. some violent that's... ones. I mm-hmm. don't know if I've seen any angry ones. Well, it's the empathy. It's that Canadian empathy that just drives them to bloodlust, you know? Yeah. They're very empathetic people. <laughs> and as David has already said, empathy bad, revenge good. All right. Well, now we've alienated a whole country. Perfect. Okay. That sounds good. I think that wraps it up for our talk on antisocial personality narcissistic personality, and a little bit of sadism. I want to thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this podcast with a friend and on social media. And thanks for leaving a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Without your help, we wouldn't be anywhere. If you do want to contact us, remember to reach out on Twitter at guilty underscore podcast, on Facebook at guilty podcast, or email us guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. So, this is Colin for David saying, don't be empathetic. <laughs> <laughs>